1: Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we are going to look at parapsychology at the Rhine Research Center and the Rhine Educational Center. These are organizations carrying on the parapsychology tradition inaugurated by Professor Joseph Banks Rhine, who worked at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and who put the words extrasensory perception on the map with his uh, popular books written in the 1930s. My guest is John G. Kruth, who is the executive director of the Rhine Research Center and the founder of the Rhine Education Center. He's been studying parapsychology informally for over 35 years and has been a formal member of the Rhine research team since 2009. His research has included studies related to energetic healing methods, bioenergy signatures, out-of-body experiences, qualitative case studies and mind-matter interactions, as well as poltergeist phenomena. He is a business leader, an educator, and a parapsychologist. and He considers himself one of the lucky people who is truly living his dream. This interview is being conducted via the internet, so now I'm going to switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, John. It's a pleasure to be with you you You've been now the executive director at the Rhine Center for almost a decade
0: Well, for about seven years mm-hmm it's getting close to a decade <laughs> yeah
1: and and you've been on the staff even before that
0: Oh yeah, I was doing research at the Rhine it's been yeah now that's been closer to nine years almost almost ten mm-hmm
1: so, um I think a good starting point for us would be to talk a little bit about the you know, person for whom the Rhine Center is named, uh, J.B. Rhine. Uh, a sure. lot of uh, people these days may be barely aware of, of who he was and and what he accomplished, but I can say, growing up, he was like a towering figure uh, for me, even as a child. I remember first learning about his work because it was being reported on network television back in the 1950s when I was a kid growing up. And he, I mean, he achieved uh, international fame back in the 1930s.
0: Ah, uh, yes. And, you know, it's strange to me that people don't know about J.B. Ryan because I also knew about him when I was growing up in the 70s and, and in the 80s uh, because he was all over the TV. He was in radio, in radio early on as well. Uh, J.B. Ryan started as a young biologist uh, who was out in the University of Chicago. He and his wife, Louisa Ryan, and they got interested in parapsychology through uh, listening to Arthur Conan Doyle give a talk at the University of Chicago
1: mm.
0: well whenever they heard him speak he was speaking not about Arthur Conan Doyle of course is a man who did the Sherlock Holmes mysteries but he wasn't speaking about Sherlock Holmes he was speaking about work he was doing with the Society for Psychic, Psychical Research in the UK he was studying mediums
1: in fact he, he was a spiritualist himself
0: Yes, and he was studying mediums, and Mm -hmm. J.B. Ryan heard him speak in Chicago in the 1920s and got very intrigued by the work he was doing, went home to his wife and said, I'm wondering if we could study this in the laboratory. So he started to call people around the country who he knew were also into this type of study and started to learn more about what was involved in the scientific end of studying mediums. Well, eventually one of the people he was speaking to... Uh, came down to Duke University, and he called J.B. Ryan and said, hey, would you like to come down Mm. and be on my staff as a psychologist at Duke University, and you can study mediums here? I I presume you're talking about William McDougal. Yes, William McDougal. He was up at Harvard, and when Duke University started— he was one of the first people they recruited to come down and head to the psychology department. Mm-hmm. So J.B. Ryan and his wife, as the story goes, they packed up their car and took their last $300 and got on the road to North Carolina. As they were driving down, they came down through Virginia, and they saw a sign for a psychic horse, which we can go into later <laughs> if you want to. But they ended up coming on down into Durham, and um, as I hear the story from Sally Ryan Feather, J.B. Ryan's daughter, who still comes to the Rhine quite often— Mm-hmm. Her mom turned to her dad and said, you've brought me to a town that doesn't even have a bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> this was in 1927 in Durham, North Carolina. Well, they, they eventually did get hooked up with Duke University, and J.B. started looking into mediums. Mm-hmm. It took about, oh, six years, six or seven years, but J.B. realized that you couldn't really study mediums without knowing a little bit about the limits of human, limi- uh, human abilities. Mm-hmm. So he started to think about, well, what if these people who seem to be getting information from mediums actually aren't getting it from spirits, and they aren't getting it from the spirits that are departed, but maybe they're getting it from other people. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some mind-to-mind communication going on, telepathy, mm-hmm. or perhaps... They might be getting information about something about something that might be uh, in another area. For example, I might have if you're talking to me about my uncle Joe who passed away a number of years ago. It might be that I have Uncle Joe's library at my house and it has his bowling trophies and you know has his smoking jacket and his little bottle of gin in a bottom drawer. And maybe from a distance, you're able to get this information. Clairvoyance, remote viewing, being mm-hmm. able to see from a distance, or perhaps. In about a half hour, I'm going to tell you everything there is to know about Uncle Joe. And you're able to get some information about what I'm going to say in the future. Precognition, Mm -hmm. getting information through time. So JB realized that before he could study mediums and know if they were talking to spirits, he first had to realize, are these other abilities real? And can we determine what what the limitations of them are? This is where he started to study what he called extrasensory perception. And in 1935, he wrote a monograph called Extrasensory Perception that just took the world by storm. It was a scientific approach to these phenomena that hadn't been done in this way before. Uh, When he published his monograph, it hit the New York Times bestseller list. It was very, very popular, and he started to do a lot of uh, radio and and media appearances later on TV, as it got into the 50s and then into the 60s. Uh, and he became really the expert on this field.
1: In, in fact, to my uh, recollection, uh, I had the privilege of meeting J.B. Rine well, uh, when I first started out in parapsychology back in 1973. Uh, I visited Durham and, and met him then.
0: Uh, we but- had a bookstore by then, I think, right?
1: uh i'm not yeah. sure about,
0: <laughs> about there that. were bookstores in durham i think <laughs> but,
1: but he had the stamp of the psychology department at duke university which is uh you know considered a, a formidable university And uh, I gather that he became the most famous professor in the psychology department there. And it caused a certain amount of tension amongst the other psychologists.
0: (laughs) Well, by the time you got there in 1973, yes, it was a, they had actually left Duke University by that time and moved off campus and founded a nonprofit called the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man. That's where I visited him. Yes. Yes. But it was right Across the street from Duke University, literally mm-hmm. across the street in a little house just across mm-hmm. the street from the university.
1: And you're still in Durham now.
0: Yes, we're still in Durham. Uh, we're now called the Rhine Research Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've changed the name back in 1995 in honor of J.B. Ryan's, I think, was his 90, it was his 100th birthday, actually. In 1995, and so we changed the name at that point, but we're still doing the same sort of research. Mm-hmm. We're still looking into parapsychology and consciousness and trying to explore human experiences in the context of these exceptional experiences that people have.
1: Now, the uh, institute that he founded when he left uh, Duke University proper, the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man, uh, yes. I gather that that name uh, implied that uh, he thought there's something about uh, the research he was doing in parapsychology, which is the name that he uh, chose for that discipline, uh, that it it told us something about human nature itself. That's something I think he was getting at was the the spiritual nature of the human being.
0: Well, you're right, and you know one of the things that J.P. Ryan was very famous for is he did not liked to focus on exceptional people. He liked to do general population studies. He would study, and rather than taking someone who really performed really well and taking them into the lab and seeing how they did, JB often would say, let's just do a survey of all the people that we can get, do large sample sizes, because he felt it was a natural outgrowth of human beings that we had these abilities. He didn't think it was anything unusual. And some of the work that Loiza did, his wife, looking at the experiences, you know, once the lab started, people started sending letters, started calling the institute and started saying, you know, we, I want to tell you about my experiences. Mm-hmm. Because, And there were so many letters coming in. You know, JB was a scientist. He was working at the university as an academic. He couldn't keep up with all of the letters and phone calls and everything that was coming in. So one day, his wife, Loiza, who was also a botanist, mm-hmm. She was a PhD botanist. She said, well, let me look at it. Let me take a look at it. She started to look at the letters and started to classify them as a botanist would, right? Right. (laughs) Started to put them in some sort of order and classification and create a taxonomy for them. And over a period of time, it became apparent these were so common. So many people talked about these. It was very, it was obviously part of man's natural nature. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where JB went whenever he was naming the foundation.
1: We should talk a little bit about the kind of studies that, that he did. He was known for using a, a deck of cards known as Zener cards and having his research subjects, uh, guess which card, uh, would come up after the deck was shuffled.
0: Right. Yes. They used Zener cards at first. Uh, what they were, and Zener cards were, uh, invented. You, you would wonder why wouldn't they use a regular deck of cards if they were trying to guess cards? But the th- problem with regular cards is sometimes they can look very similar. Mm. If you have a jack or a king, if you just get a quick glance at it or you just see it very quickly in passing, you might not get a clear impression of what it is. So they wanted to come up with some very distinct symbols. So they used uh, four diff- or five different symbols. One of them was a circle, another one was uh, wavy lines, a square, a star and uh, what was the fifth one Jeff I don't know it's uh, <laughs> yes.
1: a circle mm-hmm. a square a late wavy line and
0: uh, a star and uh, was it a cross cross yes yeah. thank you mm-hmm. i forgot the one it had two yes yeah. they, you know of, and they did these for multiple reasons one of them because if you look at them they're very distinct yes. and very different symbols uh, the other is they had a bit of a representation a lot of people don't notice a circle is actually a single continuous line one Across is two lines. The wavy lines, there's three of them. Mm -hmm. The square has four corners and four lines. And then the star has five points on it. So it had a numerical value as well. So depending upon how people got information, it wasn't clear Mm. how people were going to get information using their extrasensory perception, as he called it. One of the other reasons they used these cards is because it was really easy to evaluate statistically. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is back in the 1930s, the idea of probability theory was just developing in statistics and growing in popularity as well. J.B. Ryan was using cutting edge statistical methodology in order to evaluate his research results. So, what he'd do is he'd have one person sit on one side with these really unique cards, one side of a screen, and they would say, um, they would start turning cards over. Another person on the other side of the screen would start trying to guess what the cards were. And they'd keep records of how many they got right out of a deck of 25, five cards, five of each card. Mm -hmm. Now, if you do this one time and you get, oh, let's say you get, you would normally expect people to get one out of five, right? So you expect five out of 25. By chance. By chance, yes. But if they were to get maybe six or seven, uh, that's not really that much of a variance statistically. You have to really get closer to nine, and then you get about 90% chance that you're doing better than Hmm. really what probability will predict. Or if you got 11, then you're getting closer to 99%. But if you run through one time and you get 11 right, that doesn't prove that you have psychic abilities. Of course, they had to go through many, many trials. And JB and his uh, colleagues at the lab Mm -hmm. Went through thousands and thousands and thousands of runs of cards like this in order to and they did find that people did seem to be able to guess better than chance.
1: As, As I recall, on average, people might score six hits rather than five, which over thousands of trials becomes enormously statistically significant.
0: Right, but it it actually, uh, the numbers that I saw were were higher, that they would eventually, Mm -hmm. over a long period of time, the numbers would get higher, and they'd do much better. Mm -hmm. And they did have some exceptional performers as well. Mm -hmm. And although J.B. thought this was a very common thing for many people, uh, there were some people who started out just doing so phenomenally well that it gave him sense that there was something to continue studying here. Mm -hmm. And it drove his work from the 1930s on through the 1960s at Duke University then they started to to go into some different areas as they moved off campus in 1965 and started the foundation for research on the nature of man
1: and of course over that time we had the computer revolution we had, uh, he faced a, a, an onslaught of scientific criticism, I'm well aware of that, and uh, yes. he he was very diligent about improving the research methodology and responding uh, in detail to every uh, criticism that had been raised. Mm-hmm. Um, as I recall, in 1940, he and his colleagues published a, a book called ESP After 60 Years, and in which they uh, published every single criticism that had ever been mentioned in the literature, and they had a response for every single one and a list of uh, experiments that they felt had answered all the criticisms as well. Um, One would have thought you know, that the matter was put to rest in 1940. But uh, of course, as you and I both know, the criticisms continue to this very day. There are a lot of people in the scientific community who refuse to accept this data, no matter what.
0: Oh, yes. And um it's it's been like that from the beginning, as you, you know, one of the most striking things in the ESP, what we call ESP 60 mm-hmm. ESP after 60 years, one of the most striking things in that book to me is their evaluation of the Pierce Pratt uh, series that they did. Yeah. One of the criticisms, one of the major criticisms was that there was some way that people were either giving cues to another person while they were turning the cards over or the people were able to see something. Mm -hmm. They were able to get information from the researcher while they were doing the experiment. So, and and not only this, but they wanted to see, is there any limit to how far people can be apart and still get this information? Mm -hmm. So they set up an experiment on Duke University campus where uh, the researcher was in one building and there was a participant uh, who was in another building It was over 300 yards away. And they ran the experiments from that distance to see if there was – there was no way that they could have seen each other. Mm-hmm. And there was no way they were communicating with each other back in the 1930s. And still the results came out significant. Mm-hmm. When this was published, it was phenomenal because it, it was seemed to be definitive proof that there was no queuing okay. going on. But, of course – And they answered this in the ESP60 uh, book. But, of course, there were skeptical researchers who continued to find criticisms and say things like, oh, well, what happened is the participant ran down the quad, ran into the building, went up to the researcher's room and looked through the transom. Now, we don't have transoms anymore, but this is the little window that was at the top of the doorway, yeah. climbed on a ladder and looked in and could see the researcher and was writing down the responses rec- mm-hmm. according to what the cards were turning. Now, this is it, It's ridiculous to think that someone would do this and not be seen yeah. while they were doing it. But this is the lengths that people were going to even back in 1940 to try to dismiss the results that J.B. were getting. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you said. We still see this today.
1: We, we do because I I think for some people it's simply axiomatic that extrasensory perception is impossible and therefore people who report experimental data of this sort, uh, must be deceiving themselves in one way or another or deliberately trying to deceive other people.
0: Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, the question comes up of whether, you know, there's a flaw in the methodology. Uh, if that doesn't doesn't pan out, then it starts to go into is there a flaw in the statistical analysis methods? Mm-hmm. Uh and you know, this continues to become more and more prevalent in our in our research.
1: Yeah. Well, in addition to extrasensory perception, uh JB Ryan also began exploring psychokinesis.
0: Yes. Yes, back in the and this is one of the things he didn't publish in his original monograph, extrasensory perception. Uh, he was doing experiments. Well, the story goes that it was back in when the labs got very popular and people found out about it. Uh, there was a man who came into the lab and said, hey, I'm a gambler and I can control the roll of dice. Well, JB, of course, was working with cards mm-hmm. and he wasn't working with dice at that period of time. And, you know, but he was open and he said, OK, well, show me what you can do. Well, he did find that the man did seem to get the numbers that he wanted to to come up. So, JB started to design the experiment so it would be less human-oriented. They started to use little cups to shake the dice and roll them. Uh, Then they started to have them rolled independently, and they actually created an automatic dice-rolling machine. Mm -hmm. We have one of them in the Ryan Library right now, uh, which is a big machine. It's a plexiglass and has a bunch of dice in it, and it turns over with a really loud motor, (laughs) and it would spill spill the dice, and people would try to get certain numbers to come up. Mm -hmm. Well... After a a lot of trials, JB discovered, yes, people do seem to be able to get the numbers that they're interested in more than you would expect by probability or chance. Mm -hmm. Like I said, he didn't publish this in his original monograph, ESP, or uh, extrasensory perception, because he knew that it was going to be hard enough for people to accept ESP, to accept that people could also control physical objects, material objects in the world. That was going to take a lot more research and a lot more foundational work before he could turn that up. So he did reported that in ESP-60 as well. Mm-hmm. That work continued, and that was psychokinesis, which he added to ESP and became known as psi. All of those phenomena, ESP phenomena, telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis. Are now called psi. Mm-hmm.
1: I when I use the word psi, I like to suggest, and, and probably J.B. Rhine wasn't thinking this way, but it seems to me that you know evidence for survival after death and reincarnation also somehow uh, are are part of that umbrella.
0: Well, they're obviously part of parapsychology, and yeah. it's part of what we study in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, when we use it. In in research papers, we tend to separate psi from survival research so that we can identify these one phenomena. But, of course, you know, if there are spirits that are communicating with mediums, they're not doing it with any material means they have to be using telepathy. There has to Mm -hmm. be some sort of psi phenomena occurring as well at that point. So it does make sense to bring them together.
1: And, in fact, there are people, as you know, who would argue that even the very best evidence for survival and reincarnation could be reinterpreted as a form of uh, living agent psi.
0: Oh, yes. That's very, very common. There are many, many parapsychologists who follow that. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, when I visited uh, the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man back in 1973, I was very impressed. They had giant computers, mainframe computers in the facility and uh, I met the director of the um, foundation at the time, a fellow named Jay Levy who was doing this very very impressive study with uh, mice and, and rats to see if, if they would use extrasensory perception to avoid getting electrical shocks and it appeared mm-hmm. to be highly scientific and the results were coming in and looked really good, people were we're very excited now we have a, replica, a replicable experiment that could be performed in any biology laboratory in the world. They don't have to be you know, believers in the phenomenon. And um, then, tragically, it was discovered that uh, Levy himself was actually doctoring the data. There was a degree of fraud involved. In oh, yes. it, it was a big setback, I think, for uh, J.B. Ryan. Yes.
0: Um, yeah. And as I remember, Jay Levy was a young man. Yeah. Um, and he was very intrigued with the field and he was, uh, trained in the medical field as well. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to look at, uh, different signals that were coming from the brain of the rats. And he had wired the, uh, wired the equipment so that it would pick up the signals from the rats brains and record Mm -hmm. Whether they were making decisions to go one way or go another way or based or, or have a certain uh, reward based uh, mechanism and seeing if they could use their, if they were indicating ESP. Uh, what was interesting about it was in an animal study, which corresponded with the medical studies at that time. And it seemed to be incredible evidence to the point that JB Ryan actually stepped back and named Jay Levy as the director of the Rhine Research Center for a period of time, or the foundation at that time. Yeah. Institute for Parapsychology, actually, is what what he was a director of for a period. Um, but it was discovered at a later point that Jay Levy was actually removing the sensors from the rats and crossing them and causing signals on a very consistent basis. When they analyzed the data independently and they saw this, they realized what the problem was. What is very – this is something we don't often talk about at the Rhine, but what was very impressive to me about it is that as soon as it was discovered, J.B. Rhine dedicated an entire issue of the Journal of Parapsychology to writing a retraction and talking about the fact that these uh, studies need to be removed from the literature. We cannot accept these anymore. And, he, of course, he fired Jay Levy on the spot as soon as he found fraud involved. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things – you know, the integrity – Of the scientists, especially working in a controversial field like the one we're working in, Uh, it's essential in order to maintain the progress of the science. And J.B. recognized that and J.B. took the steps immediately to retract all of the articles that Jay Levy had contributed to the field.
1: Well speaking of of fraud uh which of course has always been uh kind of the uh, the bane of parapsychologists because uh accusations of fraud have always been there and especially in the days of 19th century spiritualism there there were many fraudulent mediums uh uh in that era in fact one of the reasons uh, Rhine began doing experiments was to create conditions that would make fraud uh difficult, if not impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, at least in, in terms of the research subjects, uh, when the experimenters themselves in, engage in fraud, that's another matter. But but there was a, an important historical episode in which Rhine himself was accused of fraud by the eminent physicist John Wheeler, and it was published in, as I recall, Science, the mainstream publication of the American association for the advancement of science. And Wheeler ended up uh, having to retract that accusation and apologize to Ryan.
0: Uh, Yes. That was in the late seventies, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, yes, Mm -hmm. it was in the late seventies that John Wheeler had written this written, this scathing uh, article that discussed all, all of J.B. Ryan's work. First of all, said that it wasn't, it wasn't accurate and then talked about how he could have done fraudulent work and how he could have manipulated the data. Yeah. Uh, of, of course, it didn't stand up to scrutiny. And it would, did not fit with J.B. Ryan's character, especially after you look at the Levy situation and how quickly he responded yeah. and how, mu- how much integrity he had and how much respect he had from all of the other academics at Duke University. I mean, there are so many stories about J.B. Ryan walking into a room at Duke University, where they're having a symposium, and he would walk in and people would stand up and give him a standing ovation mm-hmm. because of the groundbreaking research that he was doing. I mean, his work was so well known and he was such a good person to present this work to the world. This is the legacy that we try to maintain at mm-hmm. the Rhine today. We still continue to do this groundbreaking research. We try to maintain the highest level of integrity, but beyond this, Jeff, why did you come to Durham? Because it was the place where the best research was being done and you could learn the most about the field. Mm -hmm. We are trying to continue this role of being educators, providing legitimate information with high integrity to the field, helping new students, new people who are interested in the field to learn from people who are really doing the work. And rather than uh, getting it from the Internet where there is so much different information available, we are trying to maintain the voice of integrity within the field.
1: Well, and you also continue to publish the Journal of Parapsychology, which to my knowledge has been published continuously now since the 1930s.
0: Since 1937, that was the first issue, mm-hmm. um, and it's been continuously published since then, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: So that that's a very important uh, function that uh, you've been able to maintain. What are some of the other projects that are currently
0: uh, going on there? Well, you know, at the Rhine, we talk about having four legs on the stool here. One of them is research, mm-hmm. which we're doing constant research in, uh, in the field. Uh, the other is education. We have uh, the... Rhine Education Center where we offer classes online to people around the world Uh, we have certificate programs that people can learn more about the field as well Uh, we also talk about support and uh, and resources we have resources that no one else in the field has because we have such a long history Mm -hmm. we do have a record of the journals going all the way back to 1937 we have a large library at the Rhine we have lots of artifacts from some of the early days as well and finally, is community. Mm-hmm. This, to me, is one of the more important parts of what we're doing with Orion now. You know, there are so many people who have experiences uh, who don't have anywhere to go to talk about them. Yeah. If they do discuss it with their family or their friends, a lot of times either they're met with dumb stares or they're ridiculed even for their be- for their beliefs or what their experiences are. And people are looking for information. They're trying to understand what is it that we're going through. Your work you're doing here, Jeff, is so important for these people. It gives them something to found found their uh, beliefs in and their knowledge of the field. It gives them a way that they can learn more about what other people are going through. And we're trying to maintain that at the Rhine as well, Mm -hmm. providing this community of people who are having experiences and researchers who want to know more about what's been going on in the field.
1: Mm -hmm. Because there are very few opportunities for people to become professional parapsychologists to get the training. I I mean, I got a doctoral degree that says parapsychology, but to my knowledge, it's the only one ever awarded anywhere in the world. And uh, I was fortunate at the University of California to have mentors like Charlie Tart and uh, Michael Scriven, who had already established themselves Uh, in the parapsychology community and at a time when parapsychology was really taking off in California. uh, If that hadn't been the case, there would have been no uh, possibility that I I could have pursued uh, this direction myself.
0: Exactly. And, you know, personally, whenever I wanted to learn about the professional field, I had to do all the research on my own because there were no university studies. There was no place to learn about it. Uh, By the time that I had gotten around in the late 80s and through the 90s there were no university programs anymore. JFK University had closed their program in parapsychology by that point, and that was the only one that I knew of that was left. Yeah. Um, I eventually did come to this this area around Durham because I heard that there were some classes being taught at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and that there were possibility of getting some classes at Duke University, but there was nothing available by the time I got to this mm-hmm. area. This is why it was seven years ago now um, Christine Simmons-Moore, who is now a professor at the University of West Georgia, and uh, sh- she was at the Rhine about seven years ago, and we were having a discussion. And we were saying there's no place for people to learn about this. Mm-hmm. What can we do? And we sat down together, and we said we need to start a school. Yeah. We need to find a way that people can start to learn these things and have a legitimate source. So I had come from a technology background. I had uh, 20 years of working in uh, software development and computer technology. Christine was a parapsychologist who had taught introduction to parapsychology and other courses at university. We took these and married them together and created the Rhine Education Center. Mm -hmm. It's an online school. Where people can uh, apply and get education from professional parapsychologists, people who have uh, experience in different areas of the field. And we've been going strong since 2011. Mm -hmm. We've expanded it quite a bit. And as I was mentioning, we do have certificate programs in different ways so you can actually learn not about how to be psychic I really loved your book, Psy Development Systems. It gave a lot of information about how people learn about, uh, about Psy phenomena and how to develop it. We are actually trying to teach people how to study people who have these phenomena, how to study the phenomena. Mm-hmm. We are teaching people to be scientific parapsychologists within the, within this field. Um, and it's like I said, it's been going on for a number of years. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of that we've been able to expand the community and we actually have some – parapsychologists who are now working in the field who've taken courses through our programs. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, I do recall, uh, in earlier years, there was something called the summer program. People would come for maybe three months of very intensive, uh, work at, at the Institute of Parapsychology as it was then known.
0: Right. Yes. And uh, John Palmer was one of the people. John Palmer's a researcher, has been in the field since the 1960s. Yeah. And he was one of the people who ran the education program at the Rhine. And they would bring parapsychologists from all over the world into Durham. And they would spend a, a month, two months, a number of months, a, num- num- amount of, a good amount of time here. Uh, and people would also come from all over the world to learn about parapsychology from these researchers learn about the most current research that's being done learn about how they can maybe possibly make a move into the field and that worked really really well and a lot of parapsychologists came from that program i was in durham while these programs were going on Mm -hmm. but i had a job (laughs) i couldn't take three months off in the middle of the summer to attend one of these programs uh and it became clear to me whenever as and as i got became a professional, uh, and doing different work, I needed to find a way that I could study this outside of what a standard academic structure would be. Mm-hmm. This is why we started online programs. What we have now with the Ryan education center is an evolution from the study st- summer study program where people would actually come and be in Durham. You can do it from anywhere in the world yeah. and you can do it at any time because it's all online. Um, but we do have hopes of having another practicum kind of thing where we might have people come to Durham and spend time in a lab. Uh, I have had students who have come to Durham and we've done some, you know, little bit of lab work with them just to get them some hands-on experience mm-hmm. as well working in the lab. We hope to expand that in the future. Mm-hmm.
1: Let me ask you this. How how would you evaluate the st- State of parapsychology yeah, now in uh, 2018. Well, the year's almost over. 2018, 2019, probably right. <laughs> before <laughs> I, I release this particular video. But uh, <laughs> you know, after it's it's been now well, um, almost 90 years since uh, J.B. and Louisa Rhines began uh, this parapsychology research program. Uh, I imagine that uh, they themselves at one time had expected that uh, every psychology department in the world would be doing parapsychology experiments, and uh, that doesn't seem to be the case.
0: No, but you know, what is interesting is that there are more parapsychology courses that are starting to be taught at universities in different parts of the country, mm-hmm. and people from other departments, for example, out in, in Colorado, Garrett Modell, mm-hmm. is uh, a phys- in the physics department and he's teaching parapsychology to his students there. Uh, I've met his students at different conferences and there are some really, really excellent Very clear thinking Mm -hmm. and very critically thinking people that are starting to come into the field. And they're young, Jeff. This is the nice thing. They're young people. So often I've sat around the Rhine and look around the table and I'm one of the younger younger people in the room. And that's not good because, you know, I'm not a young person anymore. But when we start to bring in people who are in their 20s and 30s, this is going to be the future of the field. They're the ones who are going to be pulling us pulling us mm-hmm. into what the newest research is going to be uh, and bringing in the newer technology. Uh, it was really hopeful. Just last summer, in, in the summer of 2018, whenever I went to some conferences, I saw so many young people uh, not only sitting in the audience to listen to the conference material that was being presented, but actually presenting their own research. Yeah. This, is, this gives me hope. And I mentioned Christine Simmons-Moore, who's now teaching at West Georgia University. She is in their psychology department teaching courses in parapsychology. This is pretty unique in the United States. It happens more in other countries. In UK, there's still a big growth mm-hmm. of parapsychology research based on some work that was done by Bob Morris back in the 1980s and 90s uh, that's continued to grow now. And Chris Rowe is continuing to teach parapsychology and produce a number of different PhD students who are focusing on parapsychology.
1: Of course, all of these are important and and hopeful signs, but I, I remember uh, back in the seventies, I was one of those young people And, 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 uh, at the time, a book was published uh called Education in Parapsychology. It listed like 200 college courses in parapsychology uh that were being offered back then. It seemed mm-hmm. like that was going to be the revolution. And then it kind of fizzled out. So today, maybe there are a, a dozen or two courses. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so... Right, so it's a different, we are definitely in a different type of landscape now. Yeah. But it seems to be filtering into other fields. One of the things that uh, has really shaken the world of physics, you know, as we get further and further into quantum physics, we realize that our foundation of a materialistic world doesn't mesh with the reality of what's being observed. Yeah. And it's being observed on a very, very small microscopic level that non locality is definitely occurring. Mm. And by this, I mean that objects, p- particles that are separated by long distances are still responding as if they are connected, mm-hmm. as if there is a single particle. Mm-hmm. And there's no detectable mechanism that they could be communicating. And it doesn't seem to, to degrade or become delayed as distance be- gets further and further apart. This speaks to the fact that there is no signal being sent between the two objects so how is the information occurring now it is on a microscopic level it's hard to scale this up but it's becoming more and more prevalent within the world of physics that they're looking for a new model Mm -hmm. and it's very possible that consciousness is going to start to become an integral part of physics this i think is where jb ryan was starting so many years ago this is not about some specialized field that's separate from all the others. It is part of human experience. It's part of our understanding of the world. And this is the way that I see it growing, not by parapsychology growing and growing and becoming as popular as it was in the 1940s and 50s but by parapsychology creeping slowly into the other different fields mm-hmm. and slowly people picking up on it and consciousness becoming integral to the other fields.
1: I, and I agree with you. I think that's exactly what's happening right now that uh, uh, people in many, many different disciplines um, recently you know, saw a report about consciousness amongst ants and ant colonies, for for example. But uh, I think one of the... Problems. Uh, with the um, Rhinian approach to parapsychology is embodied in the very word or phrase extrasensory perception it, it implies a an organ of perception it implies a channel by which uh, perceptual information is communicated over vast distances and and over time and uh, we have yet to discover an organ of perception or a communication channel so it may be that it it's not really a perceptual phenomenon at all, even though it seems to mimic uh, perception in some ways.
0: Um, yes, yeah, yes, you're right. There could be some, whether there is a, a biological or physical organ of some sort or whether there's another mechanism. It's very, no one's found it yet. Mm-hmm. And people have looked intensely for it uh people have talked about the pineal gland and perhaps this is the seat of consciousness where people can get information Um, but it's never really been the mechanisms that you might find in biology or in medicine we don't we haven't found those related to extrasensory perception we have done some studies that seem to correlate some physical energies with some phenomena though Um, one of the studies we do at the Rhine is related to something that we call Mm biophotons Uh, and I say we call biophotons. No, it's not we. It's not parapsychologists. This is biology. Yeah. Um, biophotons are ultraviolet light and that are produced from organic matter. Mm-hmm. People, animals, even cells. We took some red blood cells and if you put a little bit of saline on red blood cells, they pop. Well, we found that as these red blood cells popped, they produced ultraviolet light. They were released photons, They're, in effect. Th- yes, photons. Yes, they were producing in the ultraviolet range. Uh, these biophotons are something that, are, like I said, it's biology. This is not parapsychology. Yeah. But what we've done at the Rhine is we've discovered that when people are, some people are performing what they call energy healing mm-hmm. or psychic healing. Uh, we see biophotons correlated with their activities. Mm. We also find people who are doing martial arts, doing who talk about manipulating chi and having an effect on chi. We find that as they're doing their martial arts forms, we're seeing biophotons being produced. We find this with people who are doing meditation, who often talk about kundalini energies rising. So when we talk about energy and we talk about energy healing and these sorts of things, most physicists or biologists, material scientists would say, look, there's potential energy and there's kinetic energy. You're not talking about either one of these. So I don't know what kind of energy you're talking about, but what we are finding is light, which is electromagnetic energy. It's very possible that this energy that people have been talking about experiencing, moving, the chi energy that martial artists talk about, it's very possible that that energy may be related to the biophotons that we're mm-hmm. finding in our lab. So the so there may be some physical information carrier waves that might be occurring. And they may not only occur locally, they can also occur Mm non-locally. So there may be a bridge that we're looking at. And this is what we're always doing in parapsychology. We're trying to find the bridge where we can say, these are the human experiences. How can we describe these human experiences in a way that we can understand within our material sciences and expand our methodologies so that we're not only looking at material sciences.
1: I think it's uh, encouraging that you're always thinking creatively and, <laughs> and exploring new avenues. And, and I know that you yourself uh, are listed as a co author on several papers relating to the biophoton research.
0: Yes, I'm, that's it's the lab. That's my lab now mm-hmm. that I'm doing. We had some of yeah. the original research was done. I worked with Bill Joins and Steve Bauman, um, who who had set up the lab originally, uh, but I've been working on it now for the past six years. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, John Kruth, it's been a real pleasure sharing uh, this time with you and uh, learning about your work at, at a very important historical institution that is still sort of a mainstay of of parapsychology today. Yeah, thank you so much for being with me
0: boy i didn't think we were done already jeff <laughs> <laughs> i feel like we have so much more we can talk about but i'm sure you get this very often because you're so easy to talk to thank you very much for inviting me today it,
1: it's a pleasure and i look forward to future conversations with you as well great jeff <laughs>